Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great movies, so many great conversations. But it's a lot of work. Producing this show week after week does require a lot behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We had some great films in Season 8 that started their lives as books or plays, and you can find all of them on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can find links to purchase all the source material behind the adapted films we covered from season one up through our current season. For part of season eight, we had a series celebrating the 50th anniversary of films from 1968. We talked about 2001 and 2010 for our Odyssey series, both adapted from Arthur C. Clarke's novels. Man, the second one was so much better than the first, right? Don't you even get me started. <sighs> Need I bring up Under the Cherry Moon again? Yes, also so much better. <laughs> wait, wait, no, that's not what I... <sighs> Planet of the Apes kicked off its series based on the novel by Pierre Boulet. We covered Danger Diabolic and The Detective, adapted from novels for our 1968 crime films. Wait, wasn't that The Detective the prequel to Die Hard? They were both written by Roderick Thorpe, and yes, it's the same character in the books. I can't believe they even asked Sinatra if he'd be in Die Hard. That would have been yeah. weird. <laughs> Uh, Once Upon a Time in America was part of our Leone Once Upon a Time trilogy, adapted from Harry Gray's novel. And we looked at 1968 Best Picture nominees The Lion in Winter, Rachel Rachel, Romeo and Juliet, and Oliver! We also had an Ingrid Bergman series with adaptations like Spellbound, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Murder on the Orient Express, and Gaslight. We haven't talked about Gaslight. Stop gaslighting me! <laughs> Dive deeper into these books and more adapted films at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations that we've covered on all the Next Real family of podcasts and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
is the next reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies tonight in the show, They're Coming for You, Barbara. We're heading back to Evan City to see where it all began with George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Welcome to a night of total terror. The living dead, the dead who live on living flesh, the dead whose haunted souls hunt the living, the living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. Andy, we are still celebrating the movies that are 50 years old. And, you know, we're recording this a, a little bit out of order, but I feel like we would be remiss if we did not say that our movie tonight, uh, it, this is a very, very special 50th anniversary celebration tonight as we record. It actually is very special. You're right. Because, Pete, the night we are recording is the actual 50th birthday of the premiere of this film. Almost as if we'd planned it. Almost. We completely didn't, but I love the <laughs> fact didn't. that it seems like we did. <laughs> uh, I, I am a, I'm a big fan of this movie, and I'm excited to talk to you about it. Uh, but first, let's talk a little bit about the series. We're, we're doing the first three of the Living Dead movies, and uh, so we're kicking off the series with 1968's Night of the Living Dead. And what? I don't think we can say, Pete. The Living Dead series. Yeah, you're right. We can't. We can only say The Dead. The Dead series. I was too <laughs> eager. <laughs> I was too mm. eager. Uh, they they learned something between the first and the second, and so it is The Dead series. Why did we choose this series? Looking at the films that are celebrating their 50th anniversaries, um, we're kind of combing through the wide variety of films that were released in 1968. And as soon as we saw Night of the Living Dead, I mean, this is a film that we have been talking about in this franchise of having on the show uh, for years now. Um, you have always been a big zombie fan. Um, I love these films anyway. And I, I mean, I enjoy zombie films too. I think they're they're really fun to watch. I think the opportunity to revisit this uh, original trilogy from the beginning just was really exciting to us. And knowing that it kicked off um, in the same year that that was already kind of a, a big year of some great franchises, I think that gave us great reason to say, let's look at this one, because this essentially defined zombies as what they are today so 50 years of zombies kind of came from this moment it's kind of a magical inflection point in movies and lore uh, it, it's not as if it was the first zombie movie in fact there had been a number of zombie movies leading up to this but it is the one that defined the modern rules for zombies that have been largely obeyed uh you know 50 years hence and uh, i find that really fascinating you know when we were talking about our our crime series we were talking about targets and how resonant that film was uh because it it it, it was talking about something that was still so resonant today right so real to, for us today zombies are doing kind of the same thing like we've we haven't quite learned the cultural lessons that that the the zombie lore uh is is sort of portraying here uh, before 
uh, the the 60s before Living Dead, uh, zombies were really all about white religion running headlong into black religion. Right. It was it was, you know, white Christians against the savages of of voodoo and Haiti and and, um, you know, all of these island nations that we don't understand. And they're portrayed as savages. I mean, the first real zombie movie is White Zombie in 1932. And it it's a movie that is all about this white couple that goes to this island nation and is overrun by witches and witch doctors and savages. And and it's it is very much, you know, a a battle of of religions and savagery by the time we get through the the 30s and 40s and into the 50s and 60s we're deep into war and uh, nuclear fear and communism and contagion and globalism and we're still trying to figure out the lessons of religion but race i mean it's all it all sort of comes to a head here and as small uh, of a movie as Night of the Living Dead is, as as small of a movie uh, of a budget that it had, it's ha- it deals with I think some big issues that we were we were dealing with at the time, and and for that I I I think it's it's pretty special. It really is the the zombies in it is funny going back and looking at kind of what zombies were in the voodoo culture and and how it really transformed because of this film because I mean there was an interesting element in those earlier films I mean I I think that it's a, it's a really great tradition that kind of um, this whole idea of what a zombie was this reanimated corpse through the kind of voodoo and and whatever um, how that changed really at this moment and it became less uh focused on kind of how they came to be in fact that's something i think is very uh wonderfully i don't want to say glossed over but just wonderfully like explained and just forgotten about so well in these films where it's just oh it's a space thing and but here they are like right at the beginning of the film you already have zombies walking around and it's like all of the dead they're all rising and they're walking and they're eating flesh just the way that they came up with the ideas for these tropes that these uh you know living dead would have i think was just i'm sure that at the time these guys this this team of filmmakers were just looking for something to do to make a fun scary movie and this is kind of what they came up with and i love that they came up with all these elements that really kind of became such tropes in the genre well, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's it's interesting to see when you talk about the other properties that were coming up around there and then what Romero was using as sort of his source material, his own source material. Um, you know, we had these fantastic uh, comics in the 50s and 60s, corpses coast to coast, you know, and that was, that was a good one. It was grave diggers are on strike uh, and that it causes a backlog of dead people. And then the communists come through, literally communists with an indoctrination tank that turns dead the piles of dead into zombies that i mean it could not be <laughs> any more political like wearing its politics right in its you know giant star on its hat the the 1960s teenage zombie shows a scientist from the east quote the east using an experimental gas on the usa to zombify us all this sort of lack of control this mindlessness and then romero says you know i essentially written a script based on the book i am legend uh which you know we've we've mentioned on this show um 
one reason right. or another. The Omega uh, Man. Omega Man. Uh, it was the last time I think we talked about it. And uh, he said, I just wanted to do something different. I wanted to to look not at the end of you know, humanity's uh, uh, being wiped out, but the end of this virus, I wanted to look at the beginning, at the very, very beginning. What if it started so, so small and um, and ends up telling a story that we're we're still sort of talking about today, a story that embodies, you know, all of the fears that we had at this time? Like, good Lord, the story you talk about the the thing that they gloss over in in and I would say more particularly in the movies we have yet to talk about but the thing they gloss over here they actually work I think kind of hard to tell us through TV and radio broadcasts uh, about how this this zombie thing has started it's a it's like the Venus virus that comes back on a on a satellite that they have to blow up and blowing up the satellite it causes this space radiation to come down onto earth and and reanimate the dead space is exactly the thing we were terrified about losing at this point right i mean sputnik launched in 57 and and zombies are start becoming kind of a vehicle to express our fear of losing space to the russians uh it it's a it's just fascinating to me how all these things tie in together thanks to the glorious gift of hindsight well, and I think that's what a lot of it is, because if you hear them talk about it, um, they 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 write it off so wonderfully, just like, oh, we were just trying to come up with something fun totally. and scary. And I, I, I think that's an interesting uh, element of this film in particular, because at the time, I think they were really just trying to make a scary movie. It turned into a film that you can read so much more in, in a lot of different ways. You know, kind of the, the fears of space, the fears of Vietnam and, and kind of the, the horrors we were seeing, uh, in the images on the news, uh, just the, the, dis um just the disenfranchisement that people had with the government and and the unrest going on in our country um even the race relations which uh end up happening in this film and the the wonderful uh finale that we get when our hero uh gets shot um yeah. it it plays in a really interesting way that the filmmakers just didn't intend at all but and this this goes to the whole idea of creating art. And once you create art, it's really no longer yours. And it becomes something that is so much more than than what you had created. And this film, I think, allowed people to interpret a lot into it. And I think, which we'll talk about more in the next two weeks, gave the filmmakers ideas for what they could do with the following films. Well, I totally agree. And this is one of those movies, though, that and, and I know these guys, I, I, you know, I listen to the same stuff you did, right? When they talk about just trying to make a funny movie, but you can't or a scary movie. <laughs> Unintentionally funny. Uh, you can't tell me that the, the symbols of the bodies piled up as a you know the outcome of the tet offensive of vietnam the changing media habits seeing the pictures of mass violence on television were not in the back of the minds of the filmmakers as they're creating the images that they are creating on screen you just you just can't tell me that uh you know that they weren't influenced by what was going on at the time and that that didn't put a stamp on this movie 
It's just too clear. When you look at the closing credits that you bring up, this sort of Jim Crow era lynching style photography, I mean, that's what that was at, at the end of this movie. And we'll talk more about the the kind of climax of the film in a bit. But th- that, I think, is a thing that puts a stamp of time on this movie that is unique right it it that puts this movie in a in a place uh, that it is making a statement now whether they come back and say you know we didn't intend it that's fine i totally get it but it they were influenced by the period that in which they were living and this film is the result of it i completely agree and i think that's what makes the film uh live on Uh, that's what gives it its its longevity is that they they were taking everything coming at them in society Mm -hmm. all of these different things and they didn't set out to make a film that was like targets that was an exact kind of let's take this situation that's happening in society today and tell a story that is reflective of that but what they did is like you just said it's all of these ideas that are in the back of their minds and yes they're telling the zombie story but as they're going those little things are kind of you know sitting in there and certainly influencing them and yes they're probably leading to them making some of their decisions conscious or not and i think that's what makes it a much smarter film in the long run because it has those elements that allow you to have these conversations as opposed to something that's just like yeah it was just a fun monster movie i think that the smarts that they used as they put this together gave it a longer life and gave it a much more interesting uh side of the story It's a simple story, the movie, but the cat's out of the bag. I love it. And I think part of the reason I like it so much is they took it seriously that it, it, you know, as campy as it may appear to today's eyes, uh, it's a dark movie. It is impacted by use of light. It's impacted by use of camera. Uh, There are some issues with uh, sort of, uh, let's just say, amateur uh, camera placement. There are some rules that Romero isn't paying much attention to, uh, and yet you could tell he's influenced by the great film noir, uh, you know, filmmakers, and uh, he uses interesting angles to great effect. And I think that leads to the intensity of the film and to to better scares, uh, all in this within the rule set of zombie lore. Romero is an interesting director and it's uh, I mean he was from a group of of filmmakers that had been making projects uh like commercial projects commercials industrial films um in the 60s. He was doing that with uh his friends John Russo and Russell Striner and they were making commercials and stuff and and so obviously they had a skill set. They kind of knew what they were doing already but they were getting bored and tired of it. And and I think if you look at this and you look at the crazies, which we've talked about, which I, I didn't like nearly as much as I like this one. And we look at Creepshow, which we've talked about, which I really also just am completely uh, enamored with. I think that he really has a strong visual uh, sense of his storytelling and it's clear right out of the gate. And I, I get excited when I watch a first film and you can see that this is a person that you feel uh, confident in taking you on this journey. Absolutely. With this film, I feel that coming from George Romero. I want to talk a little bit about the zombie rules that he essentially redefined with this movie, because these are the tropes, right? These are the tropes that we live by for zombie movies to come. 
I think it's interesting because there are some that uh, are that have been sort of cemented in as modern zombie lore from this movie. And there are some that I feel like outside of the Romero universe, the Romero zombie cinematic universe, that's a thing, <laughs> right? Can we make that a thing? Sure. Uh, I feel like have, have not stuck. And I think it's an interesting reflection on what he created, he created, he and the team created here. Uh, well, the first- and, and just to that point, I will say there are also going to be some interesting ones to see what he, he tried to do himself and he himself didn't even follow in his later films. Yeah, right. Exactly. And I I think that's that's interesting. So the rules here, we've already talked about and and this isn't even a rule. This is just the the thing that they where the zombies come from. They there was an intent with this film to define where the zombies come from. As we said in the beginning, space bug, right? Space bug satellite. And they tell this kind of elaborate story through a combination of radio and television broadcasts uh, about what the officials are telling us about the space bug did you like the space bug i guess i do in the context of zombie films i uh, i feel like they're always going to try to come up with some explanation as to what's happening whether it's something from space or whether it's a an infection in one way or another um i i kind of like it i think it allows for something different i and like they do here i don't feel like it's something we necessarily need to linger on very much i'm trying to think if there have been anywhere that they just i feel like they linger way too much on it but i am struggling thinking of that right now well it'll be interesting to yeah i mean it'll be interesting to look at some of the the later movies uh that uh in in many ways (laughs) have just decided not to talk about it uh and and look at other things uh just give up on the whole origination of where the zombies came from in the first place i i feel like the less they linger on the origination of the zombie the better for me right i like the i find it scarier when the mass of infected whatever they're infected by uh is mysterious it leads to a lack of sense of control for for the survivors and i think that's I think that's good. I like that. And I feel like they, they may have spent a little bit too much time, uh, particularly in that middle sequence. We'll talk about where they have parallel stories going forward. And it's just there's a lot. There's a lot of broadcast. Uh, so anyway, that's that's part one is origination of the zombie. Part two is the reanimation of the dead. Now, we don't we don't need to know how the origination of the zombie you know, thing starts. We just know that it's only getting worse. Right. It can only get worse. And with the destruction of the satellite, something has magnified the mysterious force that's reanimating the dead. And that's what's happening at Evans Mills and all over the world, all around the world. Uh, how do you feel about the reanimation part? Did you did you buy that? Yeah. I mean, it's it's it is inevitable that that's going to have to happen in a zombie movie. Mm-hmm. I will say the one thing that I feel is lacking here, which doesn't bug me, but it certainly is something that I find noticeable is if you're reanimating the dead, there are an awful lot of dead people who didn't seem to crawl out of graves. Um, even hanging out in the cemetery, like we're at the beginning of this film, we have a guy who's just walking around and he clearly didn't just walk out of the grave, but that's probably the only place he could have come from. Well, he was pre-burial. That was, that was one of the things that they talk about is that those that are (laughs) pre-buried, they haven't been actually finished. Then they're going to, they're going to stand up and walk around and come after your flesh. Well, and there are plenty of those. I mean, that's what everyone is pretty much because there are no... 
Uh, and we'll, we'll get to this as they get bigger budgets. We'll get to people coming out of the ground. Right. Because we don't have are, any of the, a lot the more rotted, exactly the rotted flesh stuff. We don't get any of that, really. Yeah. Uh, right. Okay. The, these people all look incredibly freshly dead. They do. Fresh dead. Uh, and and like they didn't die of anything. Like there's no bullet wounds. There's no injuries. <laughs> they all had like heart attacks or something. Yes. They're all cardiac dead. These are the fresh cardiac patients. <laughs> Uh, and this leads for to a hunger for flesh. Now, I think this is interesting because we don't get a sense here that they specifically hunger for brains. Yeah, the brains. I think that that's something. If if I recall correctly, I don't think that ever gets introduced in this franchise by Romero. I think that's something that John Russo took when he split off from Romero and started the Return of the Living Dead films. I believe that is the origin of zombies want brains i uh i might be with you i have a memory and i can't remember if it's on if it's in one of the films we're going to be talking talking about so because it's been a long time since i've seen certainly one of them the next thing we have is burn the dead right burn the dead is that's that's the big thing that we see there is some discussion of shooting the zombies in the brain but our our first go-to strategy is burning the dead Right. Uh, and that's part of the rule set. Burning the dead always is a, you know, is a, is a standby. It's an old standby, a satisfying standby to end zombies. But we we really lean in on, you know, destroying the brains of the zombies later. Right. Because, you know, we don't it takes them a long time in this film to figure out the shoot them in the head. Yeah bit and we should say it's a great sequence right when ben actually discovers the shoot him in the head bit he shoots that zombie twice in the chest and then once in the head and i think that's a really intense sequence uh, you know peeking through the wonderfully high contrast light through the the boards in the window i think it's just a great sequence uh and we learn a new thing about the zombies um absolutely it's a nice nice touch Uh, zombie rules that didn't really stick i think outside of romero zombies having a basic memory of function right in this case we have uh you know rock zombie who knows how to use a rock and bash in a window yep uh and we also have the daughter the shovel girl right she comes to and she uses a shovel as a weapon to stab her mother and those two things i think I don't think we get that sort of zombie evolution, uh, remembering how to use tools, remembering, you know, locations outside of Romero. That's not something that's sort of cemented in overall zombie lore. Am I crazy? It's uh, I I know Romero runs with that idea even uh, further past this original trilogy, because if you look at his later films, that's a definite definite thing that comes when he's like doing land of the dead when they're using fireworks to distract the zombies because they still have that innate reaction to look up and watch the fireworks and they return to their jobs and things like that like it's it's an interesting element that i i think is is definitely worth exploring if we uh continue talking about his uh his films down the road but yeah but you're right i don't think anyone else has used it I uh, yeah all right so I think those are uh, what did I what did we miss I take in the that rules? back Shaun of the Dead <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah okay that fits that's fair especially because I think uh, wasn't uh, Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg in Land of the Dead weren't they zombies in in like a bar scene I think they did cameos I 
Yeah, surely they took something from that. That's interesting. Uh, yes, they were photo booth zombies. There you go. Photo, that's right. Photo booth zombies. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't know if if we're talking like serious zombie films, I don't know of any that have done the uh, have kind of continued that trope. Um, But certainly ones that might be parroting or paying homage um, will likely be pulling some things like that. So I don't know if it's fair to completely say that. And any rules that stuck out to you in in this one that uh, that you felt like were worth noting? Um, there's the zombie speed and strength. I mean, certainly these zombies weren't necessarily sluggish. Like sometimes you, you see the zombies and they move really slow and you feel like you could run away from them because they don't ever really run. You know, they just yeah. kind of shuffle along. Um, the first zombie that, that, uh, our, our heroine, uh, encounters when, when Barbara is, in the cemetery and that that guy grabs her i mean he's pretty aggressive he's a an incredibly aggressive zombie the way that he's attacking uh her brother and taking him down and uh and then going after her uh, and you already mentioned he's he's kind of using the rock to smash the glass but when when she runs off i mean he's he's not running he's not a 28 days later type of zombie but he's not just a real slow shuffler like he is doing a pretty good job at keeping up with her And, you know, there's another point there that the very first thing we see, the very first bit of aggressive behavior we see is the zombie take down Johnny, right? Knock him out. And then without eating Johnny gets up and chases Barbara. Right. Right. That's interesting behavior because that's not zombie behavior. That's not something you would expect a zombie to do. And obviously, you know, for the narrative, they can't have the zombie start eating the flesh of, you know, uh, one of the characters in the first, you know, two minutes of the film. Uh, But it does represent kind of a breakage of the horror of the creature. Well, it does. And also, I mean, it's part of it is story trope also because we need to allow Johnny to return later. Yeah. And that certainly is something that we see in plenty of zombie films after this. But I, I think you're right, though. That is, it's an interesting element where this zombie doesn't just stop to eat. He he really, it is this chase element that they mm-hmm. have. And so it's an interesting uh, way that they go about defining the rules, especially because it's just one zombie. If there were like a pack of zombies, I could understand like some of them eating Johnny and some of them going and chasing Barbara. But with just one, you'd think that that would be enough of a distraction and he would just start chowing down. We also do the, I, I think the other rule that that I certainly can't believe we I didn't write down. I, this was a great find. It's the sick person trope. What's interesting about the sick person trope is that it is really something that that does continue and they use it all the time. In this particular film, we have the daughter who gets sick and she just seems sick. Oh, and then we find out, oh, one of them bit her. And of course, you know, now we know that, you know, we're too smart now. We've seen this happen in too many zombie films. We know that she's been bitten and she's going to turn into a zombie. And that's bad news for mom and dad who she takes down. Uh, but it becomes a thing that is just very, very repeated. We have it in the Dawn of the Dead um, films. We have it in the Dawn of the Dead remake. We have it in uh, just, I mean, any zombie film you can find, there is going to be somebody who gets attacked and becomes that sick person. I mean, The Walking Dead is practically based on this whole idea, right? Well, I, I was going to say that, that, that in fact, it's the sick person trope that acts as kind of the spiritual spinoff of the parent zombie subgenre of horror, right? That it, lead, it led to infection zombie movies, 
One thing that I will say is I don't think it's fair to say it's just a trope that this film established. I feel like this is something that had already been established um, in horror films before this, but it is great horror screenwriting 101 that you establish the team uh, find a place to get safe, but then they have to get to another place that is even safer. In this particular case, they're safe in the farmhouse, but they hear on the radio, get to these, um, you know, way stations that are, you know, will help you and protect you there. And the only way our team can do that is by running through danger um, in order to get there. And what these guys have to do is they have to get gas in their truck. They have to get this truck over to the gas pump and fill it up while fighting off zombies so that they can then go and get to um, this other area of safety. It is a great element in horror screenwriting that it's it's almost standard because it works so well. And as you're building your tension, you want to have those moments. And it works well here. I really enjoy what they do here. So I, I don't think it's necessarily a trope, like I said, but I do feel it's something that this team uses very effectively in the way that they crafted their screenplay. I totally agree. And I think this sequence in particular, the the pre-sequence, right, the prep for this for before the run, they're trying to come up with how are we going to do this? How are we going to get to this thing? Uh, and that discussion is really interesting because it's intercut with uh, a lot of the radio TV stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's yep. all of the description of radio TV and uh, of them describing the rules, describing that the killers are eating the flesh of the people they kill, you know, uh, and, and there's a lot of that. But but having that intercut with their planning on how to do the next action sequence actually moves both elements in the film forward and it's it's really efficient to my eye and ear in this case it just works because it's it's a great way to make that exposition uh not slow the film down there's something else happening and it allows for you to be absorbing that exposition while you're also paying attention to what's happening and the people who are watching the exposition in the house or listening to it if it's on the radio you know that they're also you know, paying attention to what's going on outside, how safe are the people out there? I wanted to talk a little bit about the building the team thing, you know, and that that it does feel a little bit like building the team, like we have a building the team sequence. It's not like we're building a superhero team, but we do have to build a team of survivors. Uh, there are, you know, we start with Barbara in the house and she's, she comes in the dark house alone. That's a scary sequence because you already know she's on a downward spiral to catatonia, uh, as, as she runs up the stairs and sees the first, uh, dead, uh, at the top of the stairs. Then we meet Ben and he takes some control. There's a, a wonderful sort of dramatic exchange between the two of them where he's doing most of the talking and most of the work and she's kind of sitting he he says grab some wood and she grabs some widow sticks to contribute to boarding up the the door uh which is it's a great exchange and it showcases him as a performer i think he's just fantastic uh and then we get the family that's been in the cellar the whole time uh and they inject some of the conflict that comes when they come up and we and we get uh what feels like the 12 angry men moment you know where there's the one guy who's a jerk <laughs> so what do you what do you think of the the sort of building the team element of well that's the, actually the another trope that i think is <laughs> we yeah. may as well we may as well add it because yeah. it's, it certainly is something that is key to these these uh these stories um i i 
I love the way that it works. I love this the 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 group of characters that we are introduced to. I do feel that Barbara is a little bit of a frustrating character because I as much as I like her, I feel like this was a little maybe a, a good representation of the 60s and that whole idea of hysteria in women. And um, if if anything, I feel is a little dated. It's that hysteria that Barbara exudes in this particular film. I feel like it's a little strong. At the same time, I do know how people can uh, can be, and I don't put it past somebody to be kind of in complete hysterics because of something insane like this happening where your world basically is completely flipped upside down. Likewise, when Harry comes up and he's such a jerk and I'm like, you know, it's I, I don't completely buy off on the way that he's behaving, but then I step back and... Well, I feel like some of these are a little stereotypical and I don't I, I, I feel like the, the filmmakers fell into some some rudimentary kind of characterizations of people. I also felt like, you know, I can buy into the fact that this woman is hysterical. I can buy into the fact that Harry is is freaking out so much that basically he's like, no, I'm going to go down to the cellar and that's final and is is complete jerk about it. Because I think that that can really happen to people where they just they stop making sense. Nothing is making sense anymore. And so they lock themselves into a pattern. And so in the end, I find myself actually buying into it. What I really like so much about Harry and Helen is that they are the commentary on marriage in the face of all of this craziness. Uh, There is a wonderful line that Helen says early after we meet her, you know, Harry goes back down. He's trying to sort of, you know, he's be this macho guy and he's trying to defend his decision to to stay locked up in the cellar with the the daughter who now, as we know, has been bit. Uh, or, or I think we, we don't know at this point that she's been bit, but later we know. And then we realize that would have been a terrible idea. And, uh, <laughs> and, and Helen says, that's important, isn't it for you to be right and everyone else to be wrong. So Harry and Helen are falling to pieces, but we discover that they're falling to pieces in about four lines of dialogue. You think he's in control because of the macho show he gave us upstairs, but you learn when we meet her and we see them together for the first time that she's really the smart one, the one who is in power, and she has a little bit of a complex herself, uh, and she's the one who delivers the message to us that their relationship is in jeopardy. And I think that scene... You take that out of a horror movie and put it in any other drama of the time, and it absolutely holds up. It's one of my favorite sort of emotional scenes in the film. It feels very much of uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Yeah. There's there's something really interesting going on with their relationship. Yeah. And uh, I agree. I love that about the relationship. I think all the relationships are, are pretty interesting. They're the, the um, was it Tom and Judy? They're another interesting pair that feel like very new, uh, like it's it's a very young relationship, right? Mm-hmm. And and so I I feel there's something kind of kind of uh, kind of cute and simple about the way that they behave. And uh, Tom is just trying to please everybody, and <laughs> you know he's just like you know yeah, I can I, drive a truck. Yeah, you bet. Uh, well. And, 
and he's just like, oh, I want to, be- I want to do what Harry says. Oh, but I also want to do what Ben says. Yeah. <laughs> and so <laughs> it's, it's fun. And so I just, I really appreciate the way that these characters became um, real people for me. And like I said, even though I feel like with Barbara and with Harry, they fall into some, some uh, uh, stereotyping. I find that the characters are believable enough where I can I can get past that. Let's talk about how it got made. Yeah, this is a, uh, a film. I mean, like I said, uh, I you know these were guys who were uh, making commercials and they wanted to do something more with their lives. And I think we can all appreciate that feeling. And, but these guys raised they they found some partners. It became a, uh, a group that I think it was ten people, which is why they named their production company Image Ten. And uh, they raised the money for it, and uh, they they came up with the budget for this film, and uh, you know decided let's make a movie. And initially, I think Romero and Russo had written a horror comedy, which was called Monster Flick, and it was about aliens, kind of teenage aliens who come and and become friends of with human teenagers. And uh, they go through a variety of scripts and everything, trying to find the thing that's going to be the right one to make. And, um, and they end up settling on this. But, and when they, when they made it, they finally made the film called Night of Anubis. And that's what they made it under. And I can't remember the reason why they ended up changing. Well, I, I know why they changed it but i can't remember the the reason for calling it night of anubis came to be but that's what they settled on and it's it's a strange name for the film that they they wanted to make but i mean that's imagine watching this film called night of anubis it's uh yeah, it's, it's a, not the same film <laughs> it's a totally that's like not a film i'm not sure how of. it ties into egyptian uh lore but you know what andy i mean it's funny look at the other movies that were coming out leading up to this right plan nine from outer space they could have probably come up with a better title and we might have been talking about that one the earth dies screaming zombies of the stratosphere <laughs> that's a great point it's a name that reeks of b-horror right yes. i mean i think that's exactly what night of anubis is it sounds like it fits in that schlocky b world yep they made their movie and it was a very low budget movie they everybody like the producers were in it uh the uh the you know romero is in it i mean everybody involved is in it this is one of those truly independent films where they're saying hey family friends uh co-workers come on be be a zombie in our movie let's all get this done and i mean if you listen to them on the commentary they're like oh that was so-and-so's mother oh that was that was uh the secretary and you know it's like everybody in it is somehow connected to them in some way which i just love i love that that whole vibe of the independent world um but you know it also meant that they were doing stuff that maybe they shouldn't have been doing by themselves like trying to do their own fire stunts and things like that and one of the guys accidentally set himself on fire when they were lighting a chair. Like when when Tom is holding the the gas pump and swings it around with gas squirting out right into the torch. You know, yes, that's a thing you do. But like, you know, it's low budget filmmaking. So they were filming on weekends and evenings and whenever they had a chance. And and so it took them like six months to film, even though they didn't film um, consistently. It was like a weekend here and a weekend there. And over the course of filming from 
the first weekend to the second weekend, I think, um, the vehicle that we see Barbara and her brother driving in the beginning, that belonged to one of the guy's mothers. And somebody sideswiped her and and crashed into her car. And so they couldn't show that uh, side of the car. And so they had to come up with a reason that there would be this, <laughs> this accident in this car. And so that's why you have that kind of fake looking crash into the tree when Barbara crashes. And I was like, wow, that was a serious, like, it didn't look like it even touched, but dang, you just tore up the whole side of your car sort of crash. <laughs> no, it was good. But, you know, they worked with what they had. And I think that is... Uh, uh, something that I find really interesting. Another interesting element is the the character of Ben was originally written as kind of a not so educated truck driver, and they I guess he was kind of pictured as a um, a simple I don't want to say a simpleton, um, but somebody who's just not as educated. He's lower class, uneducated sort of guy. When Dwayne Jones came in to audition, he was uh, he was already just a much more educated person. Um, I, I can't remember what he did, but uh, there was something some, like he was like, an, uh, I don't want to say a lawyer or something like that. He really thought that the dialogue and the way that this character acted was just too simple for him. And he refused to do it if it was going to be written that way. And so a lot of his dialogue, he kind of upgraded and he made his character a much more impressive character. And that really reflects in in how he comes across on the screen. And it turned this character into um, kind of a, a surprisingly um, smart and uh, and a wise uh, protagonist for a film that was an African-American character that is something you didn't really see in 1968. Well, he, he was not a lawyer. He was a former English professor at, oh, okay. at New York State is. University. And that's why he sounded like he did. This is a guy who absolutely appreciated the words that were coming out of his mouth. And I find him mesmerizing on screen. I, it's just wonderful and strong and magnetic performance. And it makes his ultimate uh, sort of demise in this film that much more heartbreaking, both sort of culturally what it represents in the movie. And, you, you know, you, gosh, would have been great to see him in the sequel. Yeah, absolutely. And but again, that goes to just such an interesting way that the film ends, because they really didn't intend it to be necessarily a black guy getting killed by this this white country hick. Yeah. But because it is, it ends up giving so much more weight to that ending. And I, every time I see it and I see those still images afterward, it just hits me. And I just, I'm like, wow, that is like a really ballsy way to end this movie. Yeah. yeah. Very powerful. Um, jumping back to a couple stories though, I, there's one more that I think I have to, uh, just, uh, run through real quick, um, because I think it's really funny. They were filming at the scenes in Washington, DC and they were faking this whole thing where this camera crew was going up and talking to this general in this car. And so they had, you know, George Romero was dressed as a reporter and everybody was kind of doing it. And they had um, this guy dressed as this general in this in this car. And they were waiting in between takes or something. I can't remember. And they they totally were doing this guerrilla style where they were not getting permission to film at all. <laughs> And they were so afraid that they were going to get kicked out because there were guards everywhere. This is like right in in the heart of D.C. 
And this guard sees them and comes over to the car and he looks in and he says to the actor who's dressed as a general, he says, I'm sorry, general, I'm not going to be allowed to let you park here because if one general parks here, all of them are going to want to park here. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. I didn't see that story. Oh, that's fantastic. it's so good. And what works so brilliantly with the filming crew kind of there, it looks just like a group of reporters filming. Like, I I think they may have pulled off one of the, the greatest uh, guerrilla shoots because it looked like a general uh, being pursued by news media. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying, you and I, side story, Andy was here in Portland. We went over to Studio Leica and we tried to get in and talk to somebody over there. Very nice, but not accommodating. We should have dressed like generals. Or you should have dressed like a general, and I could have been a cameraman yeah. following you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying, we've got a story. Oh, man, good stuff. Yeah. So this film did find distribution uh, after it was made. And one of the interesting little things that uh, that happened was when the film went from Night of Anubis, uh, yeah, I think it was actually the distributor who just didn't like it. Or no, they, they figured out that, you know, we need to change it to something that's a little um, uh, more palatable. And I think they changed it to Night of the Flesh Eaters. And the distributor... Um, ended up getting into trouble when it was released that way because there was another film or something that had already used the words flesh eaters in the title. And so the distributor, they are the ones who changed it to Night of the Living Dead. But when they did that, and they changed the title in the film itself. Uh, the Night of the Flesh Eaters had a copyright um, mark on it. But when they changed it to Night of the Living Dead, they did not put that mark back. And because of that, at the time, you had to have that mark uh, showing or your project would be considered not copywritten. And that little uh, accident is the reason that this film ended up spurring on tons and tons of of remakes and, and people stealing the idea and doing it in their own versions and so many different people releasing this film. That's what happened. And uh, it's a shame, but it's nice that people still respect this film enough as the one where it came from, where it still has a life. Did they recopyright it do you know how to did, did no. it all turn out all right in the end no it's this is still public um, domain the perpetual issue of this yeah it's it's basically public domain it has because of that error this film has had such a huge run of of uh remakes and related films um you know have had a lot of different uh, other film companies that have done their own versions of it there was night of the living dead resurrection in 2012 uh, a night of the living dead in 2014 night of the living dead genesis in 2017 i mean these are just the recent ones night of the living dead at rebirth in 2017 um it's it's insane how it's just something that has uh people keep going back to and they're essentially allowed to because of this uh, this public domain status that it uh, unfortunately fell into well it's brilliant we got to talk a little bit about the effects andy because this is you know zombies uh it's the ultimate playground for effects folks wouldn't you say this is a great genre for that and it is one of the elements that i think romero and his team at image 10 were really excited about kind of playing around with just to make some really creepy horror films 
and it's something that gave them the the uh, the critical reaction that they received when the film was released. Uh, you know, people said it was uh, just obscene and disgusting uh, because you have these moments where these zombies are eating intestines and chewing on these things. And you hear these stories about them going and getting these sheep intestines. And then somebody's job was to fill them with water so that they didn't look too flaccid, but they actually looked full and and you know they chewing on livers and they would they would get bones and uh, they would put like silly putty on them so when they stretch it off it looks like they're tearing flesh and chocolate syrup i mean all of it works so brilliantly in black and white uh, photography because it just it it feels so visceral and awful and they do a great job of just those elements. And then you look at stuff like when they're when they're hacking at the hand that comes through the window. You know, they make a great little clay hand that gets hacked apart, or the face that's like you know the body that Barbara first sees when she comes into the house, and it's just all falling apart. And how they painted a ping pong ball for the eye, and just all the stuff that they stuck onto it to make it look good these guys really did a great job of of making some really visceral creepy realistic uh uh, uh kind of horror uh work i think they did too so much fun and we get the zombies that you know they we know they already like to eat flesh they also like barbecue that's new right uh that's kind of a trope <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> when the, uh, tom and his girlfriend die in the car explosion the zombies go for the dead too turns out that's right yeah hey uh, hey why not it's well, a, you know <laughs> it's crisp, a picnic crispy that's right uh th- there's a funny uh, little bit here the it turns out that when you have such a phenomenon such a culturally resonant thing as zombie apocalypse Everyone has to get in on it. And you know who finds the zombie apocalypse particularly useful? The Center for Disease Control. Did you know about this? I didn't. This is fantastic. I love it so much. They have a whole zombie preparedness microsite here. You can go and learn about major disaster preparedness by actually looking at what the CDC would do to prepare for a zombie outbreak. And it is a way for them to sneak learning into your brains because they know that the great unwashed doesn't know how to read, but we do know how to watch The Walking Dead. And once they get into us that way, they got their hooks in. They got their hooks into us, Andy, and they're going to teach us. And so they have an entire curriculum, Zombie Preparedness for Educators. They have the Zombie Preparedness poster you can download for free and reprint and put it all over your home and your office. Uh, and they have the even the Zombie Preparedness graphic novel. Uh, looking for an entertaining way to introduce emergency preparedness? Check out our graphic novella, which uses the idea of a zombie apocalypse to demonstrate the importance of preparedness i'm telling you andy they get their hooks into you at the cdc and then you're always going to be prepared i have to read this to you though pete uh and get your take on it because the person who wrote this on their blog under a brief history of zombies says we've all seen at least one movie about flesh-eating zombies taking over my personal favorite is resident evil how does that make you feel I don't uh, I don't shun the Resident Evil as much as you might expect me to, because I was a huge fan of the games. I think that it's fun, too. I just am surprised that that's the one that they would pick as their personal favorite zombie film. <laughs> I was going to say, I think you're hearing shock 
That's the, it's just <laughs> surprise, uh, because that's not the first one that comes to mind, but we just truck in different circles, me and the blogger. Well, I think that's fantastic. I love, I love that the CDC actually has that to help people prepare for emergencies. I think it's very important. smart. It's, it's smart. smart. Get their hooks in. Yes. <laughs> uh, we've got sequels and remakes. Oh my, do we have sequels and remakes? Well, as as uh, we said, we're going to be. Uh, this is our trilogy. We're doing the original uh, Romero's Dead trilogy. Um, he has another trilogy that picks up in. Uh, when does it pick up? Two thousand five. Is that when? Yeah, his, I uh, think yeah, so. Yeah, two thousand five. Land of the Dead. Yeah. Diary of the Dead in two thousand seven, and Survival of the Dead in two thousand nine. So it's it's the two trilogies that he did, and then uh, Russo and Dan O'Bannon have the Living Dead spinoffs there's the uh unauthorized sequels and remakes remakes like zombie 2 night of the living dead 3d uh the ones that i mentioned earlier there's parodies there's homages there's documentaries there's living dead in other media books comics video games of course tv it has uh, it it is just spurred a huge thing of zombies i mean you could almost look at every zombie film that has been made and it could probably put it under this uh, in one way or another i will say though there was a direct remake of this film in 1990 that was actually directed by tom savini we're going to be talking about him more in the next two episodes because he was the uh, special makeup effects artist who worked on those films with romero and uh, he actually rewrote the screenplay it's uh it follows it pretty closely but i think in the remake i believe that barbara is a much stronger female character and so well because because everybody knows that female characters written in the 90s were known for their strength <laughs> uh, do we have anything to report from the awards office This is not exactly an award-winning film in 1968. It was too genre for that sort of thing, but it is certainly a film that has grown in uh, in stature over the years. In 1999, it actually was put on the National Film Registry because of its cultural importance. Um, in 2011, uh, George Romero was uh, given a Horror Host Hall of Fame award. And in 2018, just this year, the Saturn Awards, they gave cri- the Criterion Collection an award for their brand new special edition Blu-ray release that just came out a few weeks ago. Mm. And it looks gorgeous. That's what I watched. That's what you watched? Very sexy. Oh, it was. Sexy zombies. Uh, how, about, how about next sexy how about next door to the awards office uh in the office of numbers and light well romero and team were working on a truly independent budget for their little movie uh as i had said they only had one hundred and fourteen thousand dollars, which is about seven hundred and ninety thousand dollars in today's uh, money with the distribution they found the movie premiered on october 1st 1968 in pittsburgh before it spread out to a wider audience they made their money back handily, despite being criticized for the level of, level of gore, earning just over $12 million domestically and $18 million internationally, for a total of $208.2 million in today's dollars. That is an incredible return on their original investment, raking in more than 260 times its budget and leaving it with an adjusted profit per finishment of $2.2 million. All told, the little zombie movie that could proved that this team had some fun ideas that audiences were looking for. Can you imagine that, Andy, that this all started with these 10 people 
throwing 600 bucks into the pot to start production on this movie. Six grand, and they started production on this movie that we are talking about 50 years later. You and I should be so lucky to have that kind of a legacy. We should be. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right, Andy. I think uh, with all of that said, it's time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this show. You'll also be able to swipe over in your show notes, tap the word flick chart, and it should take you right over to this movie where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up to ours. First up, Night of the Living Dead or Fat City? Well, I'm Night of the Living Dead on this one. I am too. Night of the Living Dead or Fargo? Hmm. I'm Fargo. That disappoints me that that it's hitting that in the second run, but... I know. Command R, Andy. Command R. <laughs> uh, I, sadly, I am I am Fargo too, but I, I get it. Night of the Living Dead or Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance? Night of the Living Dead. Same with me. Night of the Living Dead or City of God? Oh. City of God. City of God, yep. Night of the Living Dead or Rebel Without a Cause? Night of the Living Dead for me. <laughs> Night of the Living Dead. I would love to see his dad. As a zombie. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> that would be so good. <laughs> oh, Night of the Living Dead or Forrest Gump. I am Gump. Uh, I am too. Night of the Living Dead or Targets. I mean, I'm Night of the Living Dead, but it's it's difficult. Yeah. I'm well, Night it, of it's Dead, very so. much because of what that movie has been to me over the years. Yeah. No, I, I get it. Night of the Living Dead or Glengarry Glenn Ross. Glengarry Glenn Ross. Yep, Glengarry Glenn Ross. Well, that lands Night of the Living Dead at 125 on our chart out of 373 films. That uh, is about a 66%, which is much lower than I feel it should be. But we have talked about a lot of good movies. Well, so what does that do for your personal uh, flick chart? If if you think that's that is too low, where should it be? My personal flick chart is at 507 out of 4053, which is about an 87%. Okay. I ran into a little bit of trouble, but it ended up at 211 out of 1041, which is about an 80%. So I, I think we're in the same ballpark. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. I mean, it's a it, it's an important movie. I, I enjoy this movie quite a bit, and um, I love it for what it is, but I also really love the gateway that it provides to discussing a you know, a, a zombie culture that I am just fascinated by. So uh, for me, it's, you know, it it's a solid four star. If I were to go by the algorithm uh, over at letterbox.com slash the next reel, that feels it, it kind of feels right to me, maybe four and a half, definitely with a heart. Where, what about you? Yeah, I'm four and a half and a heart. Okay. It's, it, for me, I think that it's just such a strong representation for uh, for its genre. And the, I think they just do a great job. And yes, there are problems they the, with the, the filmmaking. Yes, there are some stereotyping uh, with some of the characters. Um, but in the end, I feel its strengths so greatly outweigh any of those little quibbles that I might have that I uh, I can give it a pretty strong rating. Yeah, I'll go with four and a half uh, and a like for me, too. Where do we go from here? Well, as we said, we're continuing with this series, and I'm very excited because next one we're talking about Dawn of the Dead. Ten years later, that's uh, how long it took for them to get the sequel made. But we'll be looking at that one. 
And, uh, you know, we've talked about the remake from 2004, so it will be nice to finally jump back in and talk about this film. Outstanding. I very much look forward to going to the mall with you, Andy. Well, if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, you can support us over on patreon.com slash the next reel, where you can get access to our exclusive members only weekend show, the Saturday matinee. We talk about movie news and new trailers. Plus, we go head to head in our weekly challenge in which we put together lists of movies related in some way to the movie we're discussing that week. There are all sorts of other goodies, too, if you support us at different levels. Just head on over to patreon.com slash thenextreel. You can learn more about us and check out the detailed show notes at thenextreel.com. You can subscribe for free in your favorite podcast app and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at The Next Reel. And if you want to get into the conversation yourself, join our Discord channel for a whole lot of movie chat with movie lovers from around the world. You can find the link to join in the show notes or on the website. The Next Reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart running Instagram. Ben Lott runs all things Twitter. And, of course, thanks to Eli Catlin, who graciously allows us to use his song Ragtime Instrumental as the theme to the show. You can find out more about Eli on his SoundCloud page. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andrew. As Amazon always doeth. Hmm. Amazon had some trouble, I think, with this release. And probably because of what you said, there are so many in the public domain. It's hard to buy. It's hard to buy a good one. Yeah, because there are a lot of companies that have put discs out. And if you go through the the one stars on Amazon, most of them seem to be, don't buy this version. Don't buy this version. Yeah. And yeah, people are unhappy with a wide variety of the... Uh, versions that are out there but we were able to dive in we dove in and we found some that weren't talking about the product some reviews that weren't talking about the product oh yes we did if you dig if you dig like we did if you put on your little spelunkers light and you dig in the bowels of amazon (laughs) you'll find reviews like these would you like to go first yes so i've got a one star by will 81 uh, who says Worse than dog poo. Avoided <laughs> like the plague. Dog poo, Pete. Straight dog from poo. the bowels of Amazon, Andy Nelson reports, <laughs> it's worse than dog poo. <laughs> oh, well, I, uh, I, uh, mine comes from uh, C. C writes, meh. Too much hype for a poorly executed horror film. May have been low budget, but so was Halloween. I guess I had high expectations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on that one, I'm going to click helpful. I'm also going to do that to the dog poo one. Helpful. <laughs> Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, We switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. 
If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.